truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Father, it's clear that you want us to love one another. We ask you that you would motivate us freshly to do that, that you would inspire us, that we would receive your word with meekness and humility, that your word would perform its good work in our hearts this morning. God, that we might say at the end of the day that we love each other not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God, that we love each other because we've been made new by you. So, Lord, help us, give us insight into these words so that our lives might be changed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our passage seems clear enough, right? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Nobody's going to come away from that verse and say, so Peter, what are you telling us to do? It's really clear. It's a clear command nested right here in the middle of this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. And there's no ducking around it. There's no evading it. It's coming right at us. If we're believers, this command is coming right at us. And if you run from it in Peter and you try to go backwards, Paul's ready for you. And if you run forwards, John's got both barrels ready for you in 1 John. And if we think we're going to find a safe haven in Jesus, you've got another thing coming. Because Jesus, he sums up the entirety of the Christian life by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. There's the command. It's coming straight for us. I, th- I think in the Bible, if we read the Bible for five minutes, just pick a place and start reading, we're going to quickly come into contact with the reality that the exhortations God gives to us as his people are anything but softballs. Sometimes they feel more like hand grenades. The Bible doesn't say, hey, let's battle anxiety. It says, be anxious for nothing. It doesn't say, let's let's aim at a 90% reduction in complaining. It says, don't complain about anything, right? It doesn't say ungracious speech has been a little bit much. Let's curb that back, baby steps to gracious speech. No, No, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Everything that comes from our mouths, Ephesians 4, 29 says, should bring grace to those who hear. And if you're not flattened by those three, then just go back to the one we looked at last week. Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. These are, these are strong exhortations in God's word. I, I think one of the reasons we tend to be ho-hum about forgiveness We tend to not feel the glory of having been forgiven of our sins is is for a couple of reasons. First, because we think that the biggest sins in our lives are the headliner sins that we did before we came to Christ. So if you ask me about real sin in my 
sort of life practice and biography. I have to get you into a time machine and go back to the olden days where I, I pretty much did criminal activity. You know, I have to go back to those days rather than, rather than seeing, no, forgiveness of sins is sweet today because I sin today, because I wrestle with sin and I see these great, powerful commands of God, these exhortations to radical godliness in God's word. So I think that's the second one. It's related. It's, we don't take these commands very seriously. It's as though when we hear God say, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy, we, we picture him with this playful smirk on his face. When he intends it, he means it. And here in First Peter, we got another one of those real straight up, shake you by the scruff of the neck, exhortations, love one another earnestly. It's not like this text is saying, come on, look, I know the bar of love is so high. Let's just start here. Can we just act like we love each other? Right, just fake it till we make it. Never mind love. For now, can we just be civil? No, this text says, love one another earnestly. And if we think we can duck around that, he, he follows that up with, from a pure heart. So these are hard sayings, and the bar is really high in this text on what love for one another, for the saints, is supposed to look like. But I hope we notice before we're done that Peter, actually, even when he begins, he doesn't begin by looking at the bar how high the bar of love is. He doesn't actually even begin with the command to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He actually begins, did you see this? He begins by talking to us about what we are, what kind of people we have become by virtue of God's grace. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. I don't think that Peter's talking here about the kind of purification that that happens as we grow in Christ-likeness, as we move on in Christian faith and we mature. There are other texts that, to be sure, that say that. You know, we go to 1 John 1, 9. It's a classic. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us. And to go on cleansing us from our unrighteousness. And Ephesians 5, you see this role of Jesus as one who washes, continually washes his bride, the church, washes us with his word. But this is not talking about that ongoing washing. Peter's talking about having purified. This is a definitive past tense, this happened washing. It's that cleansing that took place the very moment you turn from sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is a decisive cleansing work of God. We, we used to sing a song growing up. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul, cleansing blood of the Lamb? Yeah, you know it. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? This is that. Peter's singing that song. He's not talking about, are you being washed in the blood? Have you been washed by Christ? Have you been cleansed? Are your garments spotless by virtue of this having purified souls? That's, that's what this is talking about. There's a sense in which every time you hear the gospel, let's say as an unbeliever, before you became a Christian, every time you hear the gospel, you are hearing the proclamation of good news for sinners. 
This is the best news sinners have ever heard. Wesley said, "'Tis music in the sinner's ear." This is proclamation of good news for sinners, that we have a holy God, we've rebelled against him, and sinners can't save themselves from the wrath of a just and holy God. But here's the good news. We don't have to save ourselves from the wrath of a holy God because he sent Jesus in mercy. He's just and in his mercy he sent Jesus. And Jesus comes. He lives a perfect life. He dies as a substitute for sinners. Takes everything that we deserve on himself in the cross. Dies. Three days later he's up. He rises again. He conquers death, hell, and the grave. And that's the gospel, right? That's the good news by which we're saved. But, we all know this, but, but we do well to rehearse this fact that we're not saved, we're not reconciled and brought into a, a familial relationship with God, a relationship of friendship with God. We're no longer enemies. We're friends of God. We're not brought into that relationship by the mere fact that that message passed into our ears. That message comes and we are called to respond to it. The gospel has, whether it's made explicit or not, the gospel comes to us with commands. The gospel has inside of it a divine summons, a call to respond, to turn, to trust in this Savior that's been provided for us, to bow the knee to the Lord. That's what it looks like, to use Peter's words, to be obedient to the truth. To be obedient to the gospel means that when we heard the gospel, we said, yes, Lord, forgive me. I need salvation. I need cleansing. I need to be washed. My garments are full of spots and holes. I need you. I submit to you. I bow my knee. Take me. That's the response. When when the apostles preached throughout the book of Acts... There were times where, where the people who were listening and they were cut to the heart, it says, and they said, what shall we do to be saved? And guess what? The apostles didn't say nothing. They said, repent and believe. That is, respond to the claims of the gospel. Respond to the claim of this Messiah, this Lord, this Savior. Acts 17, Paul's proclaiming the gospel and he says, the times of ignorance are gone. Now, the Savior is risen and he's alive and he commands all men everywhere to repent and to put their hope in the one who is their only hope before a holy God. That, that's the gospel and that's what we're called to be obedient to the truth. That's what he's talking about, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. So we obey the gospel, we obey the truth by repenting and believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Now there are ways to disobey the gospel. To use Peter's words, there are ways to be disobedient to the truth. And you can see that put on display in Romans chapter 10. This is in your outline. Paul is praying for his kinsmen, the Jews. And he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, my brothers, my sisters, my kinfolk, for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. He's not begrudging that. Bear them witness, you do have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, not from us, not from cultivating religious activity, being ignorant of the fact that righteousness comes from God, see, 
and seeking to establish, conjure up, work up their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they didn't submit to God's way of rendering people righteous. They insisted on getting it their own way. He goes on to say, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, the gospel came to to Jews and Gentiles in the first century, and it said, you are morally bankrupt before me. You can't make this right. You've already sinned and disobeyed me. You can't make this right. You're, you're sinful to the core, Jew and Gentile alike, but there's a way for you to get righteousness before me. There's a way for you to stand accepted in my sight. Here's what you need to do. I sent Jesus. You turn from your own way of saving yourself. You turn from your patterns of sin that you've been clinging to and your idols, and you embrace this Messiah. You put your trust in him, and his righteousness will cover all of your unrighteousness. And when that message came to many of the Jews in the first century, Paul tells us here in Romans 10, they said, no, we don't take handouts. We're going to work at this ourselves. Paul's commentary is they had a zeal for God. In other words, they had the right God. Isn't that a good thing? I mean, they had the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They weren't worshiping Baal or Ashtaroth this time. It's got history that has other things. But this time they had the right God in their sights. But they didn't submit to the way that God said to approach him. The way that God said, this is how you get righteous in my sight, is by faith in someone else's work, not your own. And they would not, at the end of the day, submit to that. And that's what God's call was. It, was. it was like Paul was saying, look, the law is a dead end. Jesus was saying, the law is a dead end. Observance of the law won't get you to a righteous standing before God. Now, incidentally, there's another dead end, and another dead end is not doing anything. Listening to the gospel and assuming God's love means I don't have to repent. I don't have to believe or put my trust in Jesus Christ. That also is a dead end. <clears throat> Let me just appeal to those of you who, who are here and, and maybe you haven't put your trust in Jesus. You're not a Christian. You haven't turned from sin. This is the only way. This is the only way to salvation, the only way to stand before God and have our moral bankruptcy problem solved so that at the end of our lives we don't have the issue of standing before a righteous and holy God and saying, who cared about Jesus, the son that you sent and crucified on behalf of my sins? Who cares? Now, that's gonna be a problem. Today, you can turn. Today, you can repent. Here and now, in your hearts, if you say to God, in your hearts now, you can say to your heart, in your heart, forgive me, Lord. Save me for Jesus' sake. I turn from my sin. Help me. Be my Lord. If you say that right now, guess what happens? Before you leave, soul cleansing happens. 1 Peter 1, happens. You're, you're gonna feel this verse experientially, having purified your souls by responding to the gospel, by your obedience to the truth. Let me ask you, Christian, do you remember the day you were washed? 
Now, do you call that to mind? Do you, do you remember the chains that rattled around on the ground behind you before you surrendered to Jesus and put your trust in the gospel? Do you remember, maybe especially those of you who were saved later in life, do you remember feeling strangely clean? Just clean, just white, spotless, cleansed, washed by Christ, washed by the gospel. This is good news. This is, this is what we're called to cultivate in our hearts so that we love one another. That's where we're going. That's where this text is going. It's moving from this reality into love, into the way that we relate to one another. The apostle Peter had just celebrated this truth of what Christ has done on the cross for us earlier in the passage when he says, basically, do you know how you came to be freed from sin? You know what the currency was for your salvation? What price was paid to buy you off the auction block of sin? He said, it, it wasn't gold or silver. That wasn't enough to buy you off the auction block of sin. Your soul was expensive. Christ shed his own blood to save us from our sins, to rescue us through his substitutionary death. Now, the, the question now as we read this passage and we see this truth is to what end was all of this done for us? For what purpose? Look back at the text. It answers that question. To what end have we been purified in our souls? Having purified your souls, read 22 again, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That's what it was for. What a surprising answer to the question. My soul was purified so that I could love you earnestly from a pure heart. Now, this is where the problem of intellectualism is so dangerous because it's really easy to live in a, a kind of Christian intellectualism. It's, it's easy and it's a whole lot less costly for me to talk theology with you, to talk about important, let me say that, important doctrinal truths and yet to disconnect the wiring. Those doctrinal truths are not there so that I become smarter as a Christian. Those doctrinal truths are meant to create a kind of life, to create happy Christians, holy Christians, trusting Christians, thankful Christians, loving Christians. That's what doctrine is for. Theology is aimed in that direction. And if our theology and our theological study and our reading of books isn't giving that to us, we've disconnected the wires. We're ignoring the fact that this is saying you've been purified for a sincere brotherly love. Now, the reality is it's not just the egghead kind of nerdy Christian types who do Christian intellectualism. Christian intellectualism is very easy to get involved in. All you have to do is begin to treat truth like bits of information. Interesting bits, sometimes inspiring bits, but bits nonetheless, and they're bits of information that we're collecting. And that's our framework. That's the way that we're primarily thinking. Rather than thinking as we look at these theologically loaded passages in the Bible and we stop thinking, where does this truth want to change me? Where does this truth want to make me talk differently than the way I talk in 
English language, in my words, where does this truth want to go with my language, with my attitudes, my actions, my love for others, my relationships? Once we stop asking that question, we've embraced, we've popped the pill of Christian intellectualism. We've disconnected the wires. The doctrine of conversion is gloriously present in 1 Peter 1. But hear this. It is not the point. It is not the end goal. When God inspired Peter to put these words in this chapter, he was not saying, oh boy, I sure hope that for the next 2,000 years, Christians come away from this passage being able to articulate the doctrine of conversion. That's so important to me. No, no, he had a different end goal. He's using the doctrine of conversion as an argument. He's using it as an incentive, a powerful incentive to love. That's what it's there for. This doctrine is there to be leveraged so that I love you better and you love me better and we love each other better in the household of faith. That is, after all, what this passage is talking about. It is not yet talking about our love for everyone in the world, people all around us. It's talking about brotherly love, sincere brotherly love. We ourselves, this is for church member to church member, inside the context of the local church. Later on, he's going to talk about all kinds of other relationships with government and, and other things. But for now, he's talking about how do we love one another. I've been made new in order to love you. In a simple summary, I think that that's the point of the passage. I've been made new in order to love you. How? Once again, the passage answers the question. Earnestly, from a pure heart. That's, that's where good theology wants to run. That's where sound doctrine wants to run. It wants to run to people. And we're not, we, I don't think we have a problem with running to people. We can, we can look at this command to love, this radical command to love earnestly and from a pure heart, and we can say, yes, I want to run to people, but please let me leave the country. Right? It's, it, it's I love Ukrainians, and I love Peruvians, and I can, I can love all out there. If I had a, a dollar for every time one of the kids said, I wish I could be in the Collins family or in the Pell's family or the Albert, okay, I wouldn't be a millionaire, but I have four or five bucks. And that, because they've said this often, you know, the reason is obvious. I've never had them spend the night at the Pell's house and come back and say, you know, I'd say, how was the time? You have a good time? Yeah, but we're grounded. Yeah, Mr. Michael said we can't play Wii for two weeks. No, it, they've never had that experience before, and so they love hanging out at the Pell's house, the Collins house, because that, that dynamic of relationships is not going on there. It's not there. They don't feel it. That, now, if we taped their conversations from our house and said, listen in on this. Oh, yeah, listen to Mr. Michael. He's getting on him, isn't he? Yeah, it's not so pleasant to live over there at the Pell house, right? <laughs> but in-house, it's hard to love. In-house, it's hard to love because I know you and you know me, and it's hard to love family, and it's hard, I think there's a sense in which loving those in our local church is kind of like loving those in our immediate families. We see the bumps, the warts, we see it all. And so it poses a challenge that's not as present when we go to the foreign mission field. Because I know you, and you rub me the wrong way, and you say things, and you don't value me, and all that stuff, and that gets mixed in. We're called to love each other earnestly, from the heart. Now, this word earnestly is, is scary. This word, this is the same Greek word that's used to describe the way Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
This is a straining love, a strenuous, a taxing, a costly love. Which is to say it's not going to be easy. This passage is not saying love is going to be easy for at least two reasons. The people that you're called to love. If we just read this this text, and we see the high bar of love that it calls us to, and then we look around at the people closest to our lives, and we say, are you kidding me? Really? Do you know these people? These people that you're calling me to love? Do you you know the effect that uh, an, an accounting class can have on my roommate's psyche? Do you know what my parents are like? Do you know what menopause is all about? Do you... Do you know what it's like to be picked at constantly? Do you know what it's like to be overlooked? Do you know what it's like to pour out affection and to not get any in return? Do you know what it's like to love these people? It's it's going to be bloody. It's going to be, it's going to look like Jesus looked when he prayed in the garden sometimes. Trembling. It's hard. It's hard to love. One reason, because, because it's difficult to love the people around us because they have challenges in their lives and they have things that are hard to overlook the second reason it's hard to love is me if my love is in neutral if i leave my love in neutral it reveals constant self-centeredness in my love love tends to go in the direction of where i'm made much of and and this passage is looking me in the face and it's saying the world could do that you don't need a rebirth for that Matt the world can love that way the world can love lovely people the world can love cooperative kids the the world can can love people who who don't recognize things that you've made sacrifices in their lives generosity you've poured out on their behalf the world can love that kind of thing Matt you're going to need a new birth for this kind of love and you got one Your soul's been purified. Your heart's been cleansed. You can love. You can see him leveraging this this argument. It requires something else. It's new birth. Look at verses 23 through 25. Let me back up. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since. So there's another argument for how we can love, why it's possible to love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We're still talking about conversion. Peter's been talking about conversion this entire time. He's been talking about conversion from two different angles, from the human side and from God's side. If you will, the first time we went through this passage and we looked at verse 22, it's like you were watching a video of yourself listening to the gospel. Gospel was being preached, and this time the video zoomed in on your response. That's what was accented in verse 22. So there you are hearing the gospel, And you went, yes, to the Lord. I submit to you as Lord. I will walk with you. Forgive me of my sins. That's what it focused on, your response to the gospel. 
This second time, it's like Peter rewinds and we play it again, but from a different angle. This time we rewind, there you are again, listening to the gospel. This time, God's going to tell you what he did. This time it backs up and it zooms on God. And God says, as it were, let me tell you what was going on when you were hearing the gospel. I made you, who were dead, live again. I brought you, as you were listening to that message and it seemed like just words flying through the air, I made those words have such saving power that you were dead when the message began and you were alive by the time it was over. You've been born again. You have new life. And he starts to talk about this seed. Matter of fact, you can back up and you can see James saying virtually the same thing Peter says. Turn to James chapter 1. James is focusing in on what God was doing when the gospel was being preached in your hearing the day you were converted. It's a parallel passage, really. James 1.18 Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, by the gospel. He brought us from death to life. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Same effect. Born again so that we can be a different kind of people. First fruits of his creatures. Go on. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. What's he talking about? Expressions of love in the context of relationship. Because you've been born again by the word of truth. He's begotten you by the word of truth. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There's this implanted word Peter uses, if you flip back over, Peter uses this <coughs> seed metaphor. He's talking about this seed that has been planted in our hearts. The gospel came to us and it got on the inside. God's word penetrated. The good news penetrated my heart and now it's like a seed. And, and he starts to talk about the qualities of that seed. That seed is not a perishable seed. It's not a seed that you need to constantly replace throughout your life. That seed is imperishable. That seed cannot die. And that seed is fruit-bearing. That seed grows into a tree that bears fruit. Isaiah, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, but Isaiah 61 has another reference where Isaiah's prophesying about a day when God plants something in his people. And you know what the result is? Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, he did it. He planted the seed in your heart and that seed grew and grew until years later by the work of the power of the gospel in our hearts, working its way out, it becomes an oak of righteousness. Not only of that, it becomes an oak of love, an oak of faith, an oak of hope that that brings glory to God. That's what the seed does. Edmund Clowney writes, Christians who have been given new birth by the word must also grow. They are cleansed, there's the having purified yourselves, they are cleansed by the converting power of the gospel. But they must mature in their new life. What will advance their growth? What will deepen their love? 
the same truth of God that gave them birth also nourishes them. What a statement. What a statement God is making to us in his word here. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I know the bar of love is incredibly high. Loving one another in-house, earnestly from a pure heart. I know the bar is high, but here's why you're up for this. You got a pure soul because when you heard the gospel and you responded to that with submission and obedience and request of forgiveness, opening your life to the saving work of Jesus Christ, you got yourself a clean heart. And that's not the only argument I've got for you. There's another reason you're up for this kind of love and it's because you're not the same person you used to be. John Newton was famously quoted as saying, I am not what I hope to be I am not what I certainly shall be, but one thing is sure, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is just saying that to you. Look, you're gonna have to grow in love. It's gonna be a strain. You're gonna have to battle against your flesh, but you are not the same. You have a new heart. You have the life of God in you. You have a Holy Spirit indwelling you, quickening you to life, not only to life, but to love. That The imperishable seed by which we've been made new gives continuity to our love. We need enduring love, don't we? That's what the passage is asking us, to love earnestly over the long haul. We need enduring love. What are we gonna need to have so that our love can endure? We're gonna need enduring property. We're gonna need a seed that has the property of endurance in it. And that's exactly what he says. You were born, not a perishable seed, but imperishable. You were born through the living and abiding word of God. The seed that's in my heart and in your heart, if you're a Christian, is active and alive and breathing and growing. And it has the capacity for enduring love, to motivate enduring love, love that lasts, to produce fruit that lasts. Why is it that your love can endure? despite the fact that you have an angry spouse, an impatient spouse, despite the fact that you have a friend who's very difficult to live with. You have brothers and sisters at the house who are hard to get along with. Why is it that our love can endure? Because we have a seed that has the property of endurance. The very seed by which we've been made new has an enduring quality about it, and therefore our love can have an enduring quality about it. Peter goes on, really, I think, to point out the ways in which the love of this world fades. The love of this world, by definition, fades. He says, you've been, you've been born again by the living and abiding word of God. All flesh is like grass. All its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord, the seed that's in the heart of the believer, remains forever. And then he clarifies what word he's talking about. This word, the word I've been talking about in verse 25, the word I've been talking about in verse 23, is the gospel. I'm not talking here about the Bible in general. The gospel itself is the good news that you heard and it has abiding power in it to create fresh love for the saints, for one another so how, how do we respond? How do we respond to this exhortation based in the identity that God has worked into our hearts by his grace? The response is very clear. 
Look at chapter two, verse one. So, since you've heard the gospel, since that gospel has made you new, since that gospel continues to produce love in your heart, so put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The truth is that the Christian you've been thinking about all morning is not too hard to love. And yet you might be in a different place. You might be saying, no, Matt, that's not where I am right now. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even thinking about them anymore. I'm, you don't know what my mind is like. You don't know how many cynical, unloving thoughts I think about other people on a daily basis. Friends, that's why we've got to stay close to the cross. We've got to stay close to the cross. When I fail to love you, I cannot possibly be meditating personally on the gospel. I might be reading a book on the gospel, but I've disconnected the wires. I'm reading it like a Christian intellectual, right? I'm reading it to sort out my atonement theology. I'm reading it maybe even more subtly, more dangerously. I'm reading it so that I can help you love other people. As I counsel you and give you advice, I'm reading it to gather quotes for a message on love. You see how subtle and dangerous this can be, Christian intellectualism? But if I'm reading the gospel and I'm saying, God, as I read this good news again and again and again, show me how to love people. Can I stand next to the cross and keep a scorecard on you? Does that make sense? Do you see the ultimate contradiction in that? Can I stand next to the cross and withhold love from you? I have. This text says, Matt, stand yourself next to the cross. Eat and breathe and sleep this gospel so that it begins to work its way through your bloodstream and out to others. This quote from C.J. Mahaney. I once had the privilege of spending an hour with Don Carson, Bible scholar and professor at Trinity Evangelical Seminary. This isn't in your outline. Sorry, flipping pages. <laughs> <laughs> In the course of our conversation, he told me of an interview that he had with the late Carl Henry, perhaps the foremost evangelical theologian of the latter half of the 20th century. Dr. Henry was characterized by not only brilliance, but also humility, a rare combination. So Dr. Carson asked him how he remained humble for so many decades. Listening to Dr. Carson, I sat poised with pen and paper, ready to record Carl Henry's answer. This was it, quote, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? C.J. Mahaney goes on to write, so many times since that conversation, I've thought, Father, I want to stand as close to the cross as I possibly can because it's harder for me to be arrogant when I'm there. You know what else? It's harder for me to be unloving when I'm there. It's harder for me to be critical when I'm there and cynical, and bitter, and unforgiving when I'm there. I heard an illustration when I was in Bible college, and I'm going to borrow it and bend it in our direction. It was used for a different application. It's a story of a father and a son. It's an analogy. It's not a real story. It's a story of a father and a son who live in this cabin, and off toward the back of the land, there's this river running through the property, and it's infested with crocodiles. And the father tells his son, from his early years, son, don't you ever go jump in that water. 
It's full of crocodiles. You lose your life. There's a harbor. You can go on the pier. You can fish, but don't ever jump in the water. Well, the son, he obeys. He goes there year after year. He's fishing. He's having fun. And then he thinks to himself after a little while, you know, I've been here for three years, and I've never seen a single crocodile. (laughs) I'm not sure. Dad was off his rocker. I mean, there are myths that go all over the place. Maybe that's just a myth, and I don't see anything happening in this water, and I would like a little refreshing right now. And so in he goes, and he jumps off the pier into the water, and the father hears the splash from the front yard, and he looks over and sees the boy swimming in the water and starts to run towards him, and next thing you know, a croc grabs the boy. Doesn't get a very good hold on him. The dad dives off the pier. When the croc lets go to get a little better, better grip, the father grabs the son, throws him onto the shore, and then the father's grabbed and pulled under and never seen again. In the illustration, the father represents the work that Jesus did in substituting himself for us. The water represents our rebellion against God, our sin. The question is, what do you think the son's feeling as he's dripping on the side of the river? He hates every drop of water on his body. Because I'm wet, he's dead. He feels sorrow and regret and brokenness. Now imagine, let's say that's me. Now imagine I'm three years older and I'm talking to you about the river and I say, can you believe this? People actually jump in that river. I mean, how dumb can you be? How spiritually insensitive to the voice of the Father can you be to just head straight off the pier and jump into the water? Oh, that was real smart. Now, what does it sound like? It sounds like I forgot something? It sounds like I forgot something. How do you help me walk in humility with the sins of others that I see and I get self-righteous and condemning and critical and judging? How do you help me? Here's what you do. You take me by the hand and you walk me back to the river and you show me the spot where I was thrown up on shore. Remember this? Where I dripped in my iniquity. Now, when I'm there, am I possibly going to strike the same condescending, can you believe it, tone of voice about the struggles of other people in the church? I can't. I can't. Not if I'm thinking personally about the gospel. The gospel is going to help me to love you. It's going to help you to love me even when you see I'm missing the mark. I'm not saying things Right, I have a bad attitude in my heart. It's gonna help us to love each other through that, to speak the truth, to be sure, to say, hey, bro, you sound self-righteous. Let's take a walk to the river. The best place, where's the best place that I can go so that I'm able to love you freely from a pure heart without any mixture of self-righteousness or cynicism in me? I need to stand myself next to the cross where another one took my place, where I should have died. And there I get, Peter says, fresh power to love, even to love earnestly, even to love earnestly from the heart. You look at the life of the Apostle Paul and you wonder, how do you love like that? How do you you write affectionate words to Corinth? Do you know what Corinth has said about you when your back is turned? I think you do. Chloe told you. 
Chloe told Paul all the junk that Corinth was said about him. And he loves these people and he, he dies. He gives his life away so that this church could be established. He takes stones and rods and beatings and floggings for this church. How do you love these people? How do you say to churches like that, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls? Isn't that what we want to be able to say to each other? to our kids, to really be able to say that from the heart. Son, even in this moment, daughter, friend, even in this moment, despite the friction that's going on here, I would gladly spend and be spent for your souls. We want that kind of love. What motivated Paul? How did you do it? You know what Paul says? The love of Christ compels me. I've seen love. I've I've stood by, and in fact, I haven't moved. I minister from the side of the river. I minister from a place. I minister from beneath the cross. How can you be arrogant when you're standing next to the cross? How can you do anything but love when you see the love of Christ? It compels you to love. That's what Peter's saying. You see this. You drink this gospel in. Its seed gets inside of you, and guess what it creates? Earnestly from the heart, love for one another. Edmund Clowney writes, to bind them in family love, Peter redirects them to the one source. The love that binds the redeemed flows from the love of the Redeemer. It is the word of God, more specifically the good news of the gospel, that is the means both of our new birth and of our nurture and holiness. Because God's love is the source of ours, the message of his love is what kindles ours. Christian love may be demonstrated by a hug, a holy kiss, or a helping hand, but Christian love cannot be transmitted that way. Christian love is born as Christians are born through the truth of the gospel. Now there's one more reason we need to stay close to the cross as we seek to love one another earnestly and from the heart. And I'm gonna close with this quote about that reason. There's going to come a day when you do not love as you ought. You know what, for many of us, that's gonna be today. There's going to come a day that you don't love as you ought. What will you do if your heart condemns you because you know that love is a sign of the new birth? How will you fight the fight for assurance at that time? This is why it is so crucial to see that believing in Jesus is different from loving people and it is the root of loving people. Believing Jesus means receiving him, period, right? Loving others means going out to them. We are unable to go out to them imperfectly because we have received Jesus, sorry, we are able to go out to them imperfectly because we have received Jesus as our perfection. Receiving Jesus means that he is the ground of our salvation. He is the bottom of the foundation of our hope. It is his righteousness and his perfection and his love ultimately that counts before the Father. That is why I can have hope even when I stumble. Oh, I need this. My standing with God does not go up and down or in and out with my walking and stumbling. My standing with God is the righteousness of my advocate. My perfect advocate says, Father, for my sake, look with favor on your imperfect servant, John. You fill in the blank. For the sake of my perfect love, that is Christ's perfect love, for the sake of my perfect love, look with favor on him in his imperfect love. You know all things, Father. 
you know that in his heart he is banking on me and trusts me. Therefore, I am his and my perfect love counts as his. Let's pray. Father, we want to walk in love earnestly from a pure heart. We admit to you readily that we have not. God, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. Members of Lakeview Christian Center, help us. Spirit of God, remind us of truth. Water the seed of of the gospel that is in our hearts and cause it to compel and constrain us to a new kind of love, a love that says to the world, you have to be remade to do this. You have to be reborn to love this way. You have to be saved to overlook that offense. Lord, help us to love like Christ loves for your glory. Amen. Let's stand.